you have your Bibles, or if you picked up one in the back, uh, we're in Numbers 20, be page 87, if you did pick up one of the Bibles in the back. Yeah, it just, it struck me this morning, I can come to church uh, and take for granted just being able to be here and being able to be with the church family. And I've seen a few people this morning who haven't been here in a while, and it's not because they didn't want to, it's because they haven't been able to, whether it was the physical difficulties. And uh, church family, we, can, we could really take, uh, take for granted too much of God's grace to us. That we get to meet together, we get to see our friends, that we get to build each other up, that we get to be encouraged, that we get to pray with each other. But I hope you, hope you don't take that for granted. So déjà vu, two, two words in French meaning something's already seen. When it occurs, it seems to spark our memory of a, of a place we've already been or a person we've already seen or an act we've already done. And I mentioned deja vu because in some ways when I come to numbers, it seems like that's where we are. We're, we're seeing something that we've seen before. There's so much of the first few books of the Bible that it seems like God's people are on repeat experiencing uh, some of the same, same decisions. We're reading in the book of Numbers. We've been in here several weeks, and Numbers takes place in the wilderness. We describe the wilderness. So if you looked in a dictionary, obviously depending on the dictionary you looked at, a wilderness is described as a, a place or a season that is uncultivated or uninhabited or inhospitable. A place or a season that is... Uh, neglected or abandoned. Or one dictionary said it this way, it's a bewildering situation. And that is much of the book of Numbers. This isn't a bad description for the experience of God's people at times, a a bewildering situation. And life in the wilderness, life in Numbers is often on repeat. Honestly, often they make like really poor decisions, and sometimes the same bad decisions again and again. If anything, it should remind us, it shouldn't surprise us that in our walk with God, we may often face some stubborn sins. And that isn't like an excuse to wallow in sin, no justification there, but it is a reality that you say, man, I seem to be struggling with the same thing again and again and again. You're not that far from what's described to the people of God My prayer today is as we look at Numbers 20, uh, we're going to look at the first few verses and ask a few questions that God might just show us some things about a walk in the wilderness, a walk in a bewildering situation. So can we begin reading in Numbers chapter 20 and verse 1? Numbers chapter 20 and verse 1. And the people of Israel, the whole congregation, came into the wilderness of Zin in the first month. And the people stayed in Kadesh. And Miriam died there and was buried there. As you see in verse 1 there, Miriam is a significant figure. So Miriam is a sister of Moses. In some ways, she's the first lady of the people of Israel. She's a, a significant lady. She was the one that 
led the people of God in praises in Exodus 15 after they had crossed the Red Sea and they had seen God's victory, complete victory over the Egyptians. She was the one leading God's people in praises. So it's no small thing that she passes off the scene. It tells us, it gives us some sort of timetable. In verse 1 it says, they came into the wilderness in the first month, but it doesn't tell us the year. But if we, if we go to Numbers 33 and kind of merge that with this account, because Numbers 33 gives us a timetable, we recognize this first month is the first month of the end of their time in the wilderness. So you've been tracking with us the last few weeks. We talked about kind of the beginning time in the wilderness, but here by Numbers 20, they're actually in the 40th year of wandering around in the wilderness. What that tells us is in verse 1, it talks about the whole congregation of Israel. That's actually a new generation. So that's not the generation we've been talking about in the past who came to the promised land and said, ah, we don't think God, God is going to give it to us. This is actually their sons and their daughters that have come up. So this is a new generation. And the question we're looking at is how will they respond? How will they act? Especially in this wilderness, the time of testing. Let's look at verse 2. Now there was no water for the congregation, and so they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. And the people quarreled with Moses and said, Would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness? That we should die here? Both we and our cattle? And why have you made us come, out of, come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates. And there's no water to drink. So here's the test for this generation of Israelites. There's a lack of water. What's interesting is if you go back to Exodus 17, their fathers and their mothers had experienced the same thing, being in a desert place with no water. And so we see these people following the same path as their, as their parents. And they begin to ask the questions and so that we can just understand it in common terms. All right, in verse 3 that we just read, basically they're saying, you know what, Moses, nothing could be worse than this. This is really bad. I mean, it'd be better to die than this. I mean, nothing could be worse. Perishing would be better than experiencing what we're experiencing. And then if you just kind of look a little bit below the surface, what they're saying in verse 4 is there really is no reason for this. I mean, why, why would you do this, Moses? There's no reason at all for this. There, there really isn't a purpose for us to be in this wilderness with nothing to drink. And then as you look at verse 5, there's, they're saying there's no grains, no figs, no vines, no pomegranates, or Moses, there's no water either. There's no possible good that can come out of this. You know, in some ways, we're so far removed in time and space from Numbers chapter 20, and in some ways, in our hearts, we're not that removed at all. We lose something that's important to us. We have all sorts of question marks where we wish there were periods. 
We have things that are uncertain. We have challenges in relationship. We have a loss of physical health. We have a loss of control, which none of us like. None of us. None of us enjoy that. And when that happens, we begin thinking in many of the same ways. We begin saying, you know, there's nothing worse. I don't care what you say. There's nothing worse than what's going on right now. Nothing could be worse. And I don't see any point in it. There's no reason that I should have to be feeling what I'm feeling. And I'll tell you, as I look over the next five days, five years, five decades, you can say what you want, but nothing good will come out of this. It's not that hard for us to go in the heart, go there in our heart. And that's where sometimes in the wilderness, this is where we find ourselves, kind of our heart drifting. What's interesting as I read these passages is the people are complaining against Moses and Aaron but only because they're the ones there to listen. The real complaint is not so much with Moses and Aaron, is it? They really have an issue with what God's done, how God's led them. And Moses and Aaron happen to be the ones who have to take it. Have you ever been there? Someone's real frustrated with their life and you're in the crosshairs. You're the one closest to it. And so they vent and they pour out their frustrations. They misdirect their frustrations to you when really they're just pretty dissatisfied with the life that God's given them. So this is being directed at Moses and Aaron. How will they handle it? So there really are a couple different tests here. So one test is, like, how will the, how will the people handle this test of no water? And the other question is, how will Moses and Aaron handle this test of the people frustrated and quarreling with no water. Look at verse 6. The people didn't pass the test, but Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting, and they fell on their faces. What do you think they're going to do there? I mean, in Old Testament, that's a pretty clear picture. They are on their faces in prayer. And the glory of the Lord appears to them. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the staff, assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother, and you tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. And Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he commanded him. And if we only read that far, we would say this is, they're passing the test. I mean, how many things do we face in life that we don't go in prayer and our heart gets all bent out of shape and they don't. They go to the Lord in prayer and we read these words even at the end of verse 9 there, as God commanded Moses. I mean, this is, re- this is repeated again and again. Moses does what's right. As he's commanded, he does. And it seems like this is going to go well. Like Moses and Aaron are going to pass this test, but let's keep reading. In verse 10, then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock and said to them, Hear now, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice. Water did come out abundantly. Congregation drank and their livestock. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy or set apart in the eyes of the people of Israel. Therefore, you won't bring this assembly into the land I've given them. These are the waters of Meribah, where the people of Israel 
quarreled with the Lord, and through them he showed himself holy. This passage tells us that leaders are imperfect. But you already knew that, didn't you? I hope you already knew that. As you dissect the passage a little more, you you find clues here as to what went wrong because Moses and Aaron also have failed the test. God said, clearly, speak to the rock and the rock will give water. But Moses doesn't speak to the rock. Moses speaks to the people. More accurately, Moses scolds the people. Says, hear now, you rebels. In a moment of frustration, he says, am I going to have to do this again? Maybe he looks at the people and he says, you know what? Maybe he sees family resemblance and it's just as if, you know what? I had to do the same thing with your, with your dad. And I saw the same awful attitude from your mom. And you know what? Am I going to have to do it again? Am I going to have to bring out water? Did you not hear from your dad? Did you not hear from your mom? Do you not realize that God God is going to take care of this? Am I going to have to take care of you again? Have you not gotten the message? And in his moment of anger, he responds, not speaking to the rock, but striking the rock twice. And I, I don't think he was giving it a love tap. I think he was quite angry. It's interesting in verse 12, the wording is not what I expect. The Lord says to Moses and Aaron, because you didn't believe in me. See, I would expect him to say, because you didn't obey me. But God says, you didn't believe in me. And that tells us something very, very important, that unbelief is often at the root of our disobedience. So while we disobey and while we do rebel, often what's going on in our heart is is something we don't believe in God. So we really don't trust God, and so we're consumed with worry. Or we really don't see God as giving us that way of escape. So we succumb to temptation and lust and in greed and in in all sorts of things, anger. We, We really don't see him at work. We're really impatient, and because of that, we really don't see God as good in making us deal with this junk. We're frustrated with it, and in that frustration, it says more about our unbelief. We really don't think God is God. We really don't set him apart. That's what holy means. We really don't set him apart and say, God, you're God, and I'm not. And in that moment... Moses was angry. I mean, he's a man worn down. As a matter of fact, when you read Psalm 106, it would say that the people made, in this very instance, made Moses bitter. He's a bitter old man. And it would say in Psalm 106 and verse 33 that he spoke rashly with his lips. I guess he did. Oh, there's just very few things that I've said in anger. Just spur-of-the-moment response. There's very few of those things that really went well. Feels very emotionally satisfying. And in the end, I learned the wisdom of Proverbs that a soft answer turns away wrath, or sometimes it's just better to keep your mouth closed. And Moses doesn't, and he gets angry. We have some failed tests here. You know, yet one of the privileges of Scripture is that you know, they say hindsight's twenty twenty, and so sometimes scripture will kind of fast forward a little bit and say, 
This is why that was such a big deal. Here is how it went wrong. And that's really helpful to me because sometimes in the moment, I need to know, okay, if I were to look at this with a a different perspective, maybe I would see things differently. And so I really do want to ask some questions because I think there's benefit. We've looked at the story, but I think there's benefit. And, And one of the questions we might ask is, like, how would it impact us? What if you saw a bigger picture in the wilderness, in this bewildering situation? What if you saw a bigger picture of what God was doing? Could that help? Would that have helped Moses? In that moment, in that gut reflex where he responds harshly and rashly. You know, the story is a little bit jarring. As you read it, it seems like Moses is, Moses is going to end up paying big time for what seems like, ah, he lost his temper, haven't we all? Does the punishment really fit the crime? What begins to put some of the pieces in play is when we see the bigger picture. You know, a lot of the Bible has to deal with symbolism, and some of that isn't easily seen on the surface. Sometimes you have to read the Bible again and again to begin to appreciate all the, all the symbolism in it. I want you to see a couple different passages, and you don't have to turn to them. But there is a lot of symbolism when it comes to two things that are involved in this story. And then we begin to get an indicator into the bigger picture of why this was such a big deal of Moses. So that there's symbolism with the rock and there's symbolism with water. As a matter of fact, in Deuteronomy 32, once again, you don't have to turn there, but Deuteronomy 32 says, Moses saying, I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. The rock, so this is another name for God, isn't it? The rock, his work is perfect. All his ways are justice. He's a God of faithfulness. The rock is a God. The rock is God. That's a repeated analogy even in the Psalms and in 2 Samuel. I mean, it goes, goes again and again. That's a great analogy for God, isn't it? So God is not like the sand which will give, a, give way, but he's firm. He's our refuge. He's our strength. He's a rock. If Moses had seen a bigger picture instead of just his immediate frustration, maybe he would have responded differently if he had seen God is picturing himself as a rock. What about the water? When, when you come into John chapter 4, Jesus is speaking. This is the story of the woman at the well. And Jesus says to this woman, everyone who drinks of the water from the well will surely be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. I mean, there's, there's water. So here's the analogy. We've seen the rock is God and we've seen this water and the source of the water is Jesus. Jesus is promising to be this water and there's a water that it's going to amount to life, eternal life, not just like momentary quenching of thirst, but eternal life. I mean, there's symbolism, there's imagery and God is this bigger picture that I'm sure Moses didn't see that day in the wilderness. As a matter of fact, Jesus would say in John chapter 7, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, so now no, no, notice that it's connected to belief. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And this he said about the Holy Spirit, whom, had, whom those who, who believed in him were going to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus had not yet been glorified. Jesus promises to be the source of that living water which will be inside of you. Do you see the picture now? God is the rock. Jesus is the source of that living water, and, and is that living water which will give eternal life to his people. And so, we put it together And Paul does nicely for us here in 1 Corinthians 10. 
He says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers, the Israelites in Numbers 20, they were under a cloud, passed through the sea, the Red Sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food. Then notice verse 4, and they all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was whom? rock was Christ. So Moses, in his anger, confuses the picture. Confuses the picture. The picture of this, that God is all we need and we should love and follow and trust him. And sin wrecks that and alienates us. And so we are left with with thirst and we're left with need. But God made promises to send his only son that whoever would turn and trust in him and follow him would not perish but would have that water of eternal life inside. You'd be remade inside. That's the picture. Undoubtedly, Moses didn't know that God was using that circumstance to show something that that would last for generations. No, it's simply a day of complaining and a day where Moses was fed up with it. And what I have to say is God's designs are so interwoven with some of the ordinary things of life that you just may not know that Sunday, February 21st, there's a much bigger picture than your momentary frustration. You just don't know that. But, but what if we could see God has something bigger in mind? Failed tests kind of help us see these things. We, we ask the question, I mean, how would it impact us if we knew there was a bigger picture? But there's another question I want us to see, and that is, if you could, what if you could see a deeper purpose for how God is leading in the wilderness? So one is a bigger picture, but, but what if you also, I think this is an important question, what if there was a deeper purpose? But I'll tell you what, what we always see in the wilderness is not always what is reality. When I'm suffering, when I'm in a bewildering situation, when I feel neglected or abandoned or kind of in this uninhabited place, really all I see is about two inches in front of my face. But what if there's a different purpose? What if there's a deeper purpose? Can I ask you to do something? Can I ask you to turn in Scripture uh, about 20 pages over or so, 15 or 20? Uh, And let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 8. Just the next book over. Because we have in Deuteronomy 8, it's like the curtain is pulled back. And God is going to tell us exactly what the purpose was. And that's extremely helpful. So Numbers 20, all they've got is we're in the wilderness and it makes no sense and no good can come out of this. But in Deuteronomy 8, God says, here's what I was doing. Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 2, it says, You shall remember the, chapter 8, verse 2, you shall remember the whole way that the Lord God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. That, or the purpose he led you in the wilderness, was that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. He humbled you. He let you hunger, but then he fed you with manna which you didn't know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. What's the purpose? And so, 
they're inclined to say there's nothing good that can come out of this. There's no reason for this. There's no benefit. This does not make sense. And God says, no, there is a purpose. And that purpose is he wants to test and humble us. He's testing and humbling us. He's keeping our pride in check. You know why he does that? Because prideful people, whatever they're doing, they're not walking with God. So if I walk out these doors, arrogant as can be, however, however, I might have given the appearance that I'm walking with God and I'm a holy person, if I walk out of here arrogant and prideful, you can be assured of one thing, I am not walking with God. And God knows how to keep that pride in check. God knows how to make sure we are depending on him by saying, you think bread's important. You think your, your, your stomach pain's telling you it's time to eat. You think that's important, but, but you won't survive spiritually without hearing from me. It says he, he tests us. Are you comfortable with that word? I think you, you can be if you understand what kind of test it is. So there's the lie detector test, right? So they strap it on and try to get you in the gotcha moment. Ah, you weren't. Ah, that was partial truth, partial lie. That's not the test that God's doing here. The test that God is doing would be like the test of a trainer in a weight room saying, let's add a little bit more weight and let's see if you can do that. Let's build those muscles. Let's get stronger. The testing that God is doing, it'd be like uh, in a classroom where uh, a teacher identifies a student that has amazing potential and gives them some extra work or some challenging reading and say, I want you because I I think you can do this. I think you can learn. I think you can grow. That's an important principle for us in life, and we know it, although we don't like it. I don't like it. But we grow the most when things are tough. We often grow the most when we're hurt. We grow when we're stretched. That's why you wouldn't find a coach in the middle of a basketball season bringing his guys or his gals into practice and saying, you know what, why don't we just run for about 60 seconds and call it a day because I want you guys to get better. That makes no sense. That's why someone who is teaching AP calculus isn't going to say, you know what we're going to do today? Let's go over some multiplication tables. Let's do the threes today. Because students would be unprepared. That's why relationships don't kind of maintain a, do you like me? Check yes or no. It's because none of that, none of that, none of that grows us. None of that makes anything stronger. We need some tough times to make us stronger. And the fact is that is exactly how life works. Often as you look back, the things that are the toughest, we actually would say, I don't think I'd take them out of my life because it made me who I am. This is God at work, testing us and humbling us. It'd be nice if it were easier. I remember remember being at a, a kindergarten graduation. Those are interesting for lots of different reasons. It was probably about 10 years ago. And I remember... They played a song for all the cute little kiddos at the end. And the song was written by uh, some great theologians, Rascal Flats. So the song 
is my wish. I love the song. So let me just read a few lines. I hope the days come easy and the moments pass slow and each road leads you to where you want to go. And if you're faced with the choice and you have to choose, I hope you choose the one that means the most to you. And if one door opens to another door closed, I hope you keep on walking until you find the window. And then the chorus, my wish for you is that this life becomes all that you want it to. Your dreams stay big, your worries stay small, and you never need to carry more than you can hold. I have a kindergartner. And I love that. And that's so disconnected from reality. Far be it for me to overthink a country song, you know. And it's nice, and you know, a little tear in your eye. I hope, I hope my kids never have to have tough things. Actually, what I know, though, is that the tougher things that they experience will form them in a way the easy things won't. As a matter of fact, when you even take that parenting analogy further, look at verse 5 of Deuteronomy 8. Know then in your heart as a man disciplines his son. You want to know another purpose? This is what's going on. The Lord your God disciplines you. Okay, God, what is your purpose here? His purpose is that he values a loving father-child relationship with us, with you. We just sang, you're a good, good father. It's who you are, it's who you are, and I'm loved by you. And yet, do we understand that? I mean, God wants us to know you are not an orphan. Regardless of your relationship with your earthly father, there is a heavenly father. And, And to do that, those whom the Lord loves, Hebrews 12 says, he disciplines I'm really not in the habit of uh, correcting a complete stranger's kids. While we say, like, there's nothing good that's coming out of this, God may be saying, I'm developing a relationship with you as your father so that you know I love you. When it comes to the responsibility that Shauna and I feel and gladly feel for bringing up three amazing gifts that God's given to us. I think about our kids and we want to correct and we want to admonish and we want to encourage and we want to develop. We want to guide and we want to discipline and we want to nurture and we want to to care for their lives just as any parent in here. We know we can't control them, but we know God has placed us in their lives to shape them. And any earthly feeling I have of wanting to do my best to love my kids, that is only a small glimpse of what God wants for you to shape you, to guide you, to correct you, to discipline you, to make sure you know, to make sure I know. He values that father-child relationship. One more purpose. This is a little bit different but it's developed on the others. Can you look at verse 7 of Deuteronomy 8? Notice, this is a purpose. So God's going to kind of pull the curtain back and say, here's one more thing I was doing in the wilderness. It says, for the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land. And it's a land of brooks of water. You want to talk about water? It will be a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs flowing out in the valleys and hills. It's a land of wheat and barley, vines, fig trees, and pomegranates. It's a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land 
and, and, and even under the surface. I mean, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. And you shall eat and be full and you'll bless the Lord your God for the good land he's given you. And take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes which I command you today. Lest when you've eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, when your herds and flocks multiply, your silver and gold is multiplied, all that you have is multiplied. Beware that your heart be lifted up and and you might forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness. Just pause there for a moment. God knows exactly how terrifying your situation and my situation is in the wilderness. He knows that that bewildering situation is great and terrifying. He's he's not oblivious to that, but, but notice what he says. It has fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground. There's no water. But he brought you water out of the flinty rock. He fed you in the wilderness with manna your fathers didn't know that he might humble you and test you. And then if you're in the habit of underlining or highlighting something in your Bible, you ought to highlight the end of verse 16. To do you good in the end. Because he's a good, good father. And that's who he is. That's who he is. Beware lest you say in your heart, is my power. It's my intellect. It's my wealth. It's my might. It's gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to even get the wealth in the first place. You know what another purpose is? God is preparing us for the test of being out of the wilderness. Sometimes we look at like suffering as a test, but blessing is a test as well. And often I'm saying, well, yeah, test me in that way, Lord, all the time. Just test me with blessing. Let's see how I do with that. He tests us in the wilderness. Because there might come the time where we come out of the, out of the wilderness. We appreciate the superstar, the celebrity that never forgets where they came from. Goes back to kind of their humble origins and remembers this is who I this is who I was. This is, this is who I am. God says, look at what I did. I brought you out of Egypt. I led you. I fed you. I gave you water. All that to do you good in the end. So you're in the wilderness right now, but, but what if one day, what if one day you should have authority? So right now you're under, let's say, brutal authority. What if one day you actually come out of that and you're in authority? How will you handle that test? You're under negative influences right now, and this is just a season. And you'd love to remove that, but right now the influences on your life, a lot of those are, are tough. But what if one day you get the influence situation? How will you handle that test? Maybe right now it's that relationship that you don't have or that you do have that's putting you in the wilderness, but what if that changes? What if, what if that friendship you really want to have, what, what if you have that? What What will that mean for your relationship with God? What about the financial security that you say, if I just had that, if I just had one more zero in the column, I mean, that's all I would need and everything would be fine. What if you got that? Are you ready for that test? What if you had better health? What if you had less stress? Because I, I don't know, I can't promise that. I don't know God's path for all of us. But for some of you, you're in the wilderness now and it may be 
that you go from the wilderness to meeting Jesus and you have rest forevermore. But it may be that you go out of that wilderness in five days or five weeks, five months, five years. And you have, a, you have another kind of test. This kind of testing helps us with our forgetfulness. The words re- remember and don't forget come up again and again. You remember what happened. How catastrophic it would be to forget everything we learned. God says that's spiritual suicide to forget it. The testing helps keep our pride in check. We, we realize it's not my power, not my wealth. I know who I am. It helps us understand true satisfaction. Nothing like being in the wilderness to say, you know, now I truly know what I need. I thought I knew what I needed, but needs a, needs a complicated word. Often when we're in the wilderness, we look at needs differently, wealth differently. We look at God differently. We look at ourselves differently. We look at the future differently. We've looked at it like the deeper purpose for their lives. But what about you and what about me today? It's great when you can kind of fast forward and see, oh, that's what God was doing, but kind of aren't living in the rearview mirror so much as we're looking out the front windshield saying, God, I, I really don't know here. I just leave us with a few verses. First Peter 1 and verse 6 says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. Because the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that would perish, though it is tested by fire, that testing your faith may be found to result in praise and glory at the honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. James 1 could say, Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know, you know there's a purpose. You know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be complete, perfect, mature, lacking in nothing. And one more, 2 Corinthians 4.17. This light, momentary affliction. This wilderness, this bewildering situation. Neglected, abandoned. This light momentary affliction is preparing. It's at work. Working in our waiting, preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Sometimes we have to understand and trust there's a deeper purpose for our wilderness. One piece of advice today is cast your cares on him. He cares for you. See the bigger picture. Realize there's a deeper purpose. And ask you to bow your head. We'll sing in just a moment. And the song is like a really bold statement. It's saying, I surrender all. In the good times, that's a lot easier to think through than we're actually living with. Yeah, we, we feel like we have surrendered pretty much everything. And God is testing us in that. Father, would you help us? This is, not in, this is not a theoretical message for many in the room. And there's pain attached and there's a lot of darkness and not a lot of clarity for uh, friends. There may be even strangers that I don't know that are really struggling to 
even know if you're real because of the distance they might feel. Lord, open our hearts so that we might be able to surrender today and know that you are good and you, are, you do care. Lord, thank you for your kindness in meeting with us and reminding us of truth. May, may we learn from what we've read. May that shape the way we live. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.